It sounds counterintuitive, getting students to learn more by thinking about learning. Today on episode 47, Todd Sakrisik speaks with me about developing metacognition skills in our students. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so pleased today to be welcoming Todd Zakrizek to today's Teaching in Higher Ed, episode 47. Todd Zakrizek is an associate research professor and associate director of fellowship programs in the Department of Family Medicine. He is also the executive director of the Academy of Educators. Todd, welcome to the show. Hey, Bonnie, thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Now, the two roles that I just spoke of involve your work at UNC, but would you share some of your other work that you do on boards and also some of your current work on research? Oh, yes, I will. Let's see here. I'm kind of keeping busy these days. And so I'm also on the Microsoft board for technology enhanced instruction. So that's a TEI. Also on the Journal of Excellence in College Teaching Board, a couple other journal boards, and so several several uh, publications like to do that one. Um, currently working also on a book series through Stylus Publishing on effective teaching. So just try not to be bored. Oh, I, I've been privileged to be able to watch your most recent TED Talk. I don't know, have you done more than one or was that the TED Talk? Oh, that was the TED Talk. It scared me to death. It was so much pressure, but I just I just want to do such a good job. So I think I spent two weeks nonstop preparing for that 12 minutes. Those are, it was a lot of fun. Those are absolutely challenging. And for people listening, the show notes will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 47. And I'll have a link into his talk because I think it's something when you can actually see someone and see what you're like as a presenter. I'm I'm just was incredibly impressed. And those are way harder than they look, but it's brilliant. It's a nice, nice uh, work to look at the subject of metacognition, which is actually what we're going to talk about today. But let's back up a couple of steps and start out by telling us about some of your unusually low grades in college. Oh, thank you. What a wonderful place to start as some of my failures in the past. <laughs> yes, I like of course, that. of course. Tell so, me about your, oh, tell me about your failures today. I know, we'll reflect That's back. right. My biggest <laughs> failure academically. Well, actually, you know, I, I actually, most of the talks I do give, I start out with this quick little story of when I went off to college and I was a first generation college student, so I didn't know what I was really doing and I didn't even know who to ask. And so um, one of the things I love to tell people is that I started out looking at the college catalog, figuring, well, you know, you should be able to pick out your own classes. You're in college. And so it says to take a math course. So I signed up for calculus and, <laughs> and it said to sign up for a science course. So I took physics and it said to have a lab course. And I figured, well, you can't double dip on the lab course from physics. So I better be sure I took chemistry with a lab. Oh my and then I had to have a social science course. So I took psychology. And then, of course, uh, my actual degree was going to be in criminal justice. So I took introduction to criminal justice. And one of my very first grades that I got was from my chemistry class, and it was an F minus minus. Which and, I did not even think was possible, and neither did you. <laughs> well, no, I didn't. But the funny part is, once you work with lots of different faculty and talk to a lot of different faculty, and most of the listeners out there have had a wide variety of different faculty members, anything is possible. 
Um, so I, I, I worked up the nerve to go talk to the instructor. And when I talked to him, I said, I, you know, I don't even know what this is. You know, could you explain it to me? And he said, well, given you received an F minus minus, it doesn't surprise me you failed to comprehend it. And so I kind of thought that was a little bit rude, oh, yeah. but it really started me thinking as the messages that we give to students and the messages to instructors, because I really wasn't there saying, could you explain the concept to me? What I meant was, could you explain to me what this means in terms of the class? And, and basically it boiled down to, I had about a 38%, I don't remember the exact grade, but I think it was in the high thirties. And uh, the concept was, could I even pass the course at this time? But instead of saying, given this very low grade, do I have a possibility of passing the course? Instead, he interpreted it this other way. And so this very day when students ask me questions like, uh, oh, here's one for you. I couldn't make it to class Monday. Did I miss anything? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the student's not asking you if she or he missed anything, to which we might respond, well, of course you didn't miss anything. You know, we all just mourned your absence. And how could you possibly have learning without you present? Exactly. Um, you know, we... We got all these sarcastic things, but what it really boils down to is what the student wants to know is, is there anything in particular that I should be prepared for for the next class because I missed the last class? And so much like this F minus minus is if, if a student asks a question and it hits me the wrong way, I stop and say, now let's talk about the way I interpret your question and how we might think about you asking it in a different way, if that's truly what you mean, which is kind of a metacognitive process of asking a question. The other thing I'm hearing you say, too, is that you are assuming the best instead of assuming the worst and that there might be some better reason why they'd be asking you a question like that, because it can seem like a personal affront. What do you mean? Did you miss anything? But if we assume that there might be something else there, that I think that really helps us. And, and I think the longer we do it, the more we need to remember things like that, too. It's so true. It's very, very easy. If one of the things, and again, I, 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 these days, everything about is thinking about processes and stuff. I just think that's where all the fun is. But, you know, any, these negative things are going to happen in life. And if they do, and if that's what we focus on, if a cell phone goes off in class, the easiest thing is say, oh my gosh, another cell phone. Could you please turn off your cell phone? Well, for that particular student, it's just that individual forgot to turn the phone off. We've all done that at different times. It may be the first time in, in years that the student had a phone go off in class, but it might be your fourth one this week. So instead of going after the student saying, how dare you, it's more of what you were just saying. You take the positive approach and say, look, I, I realized you probably forgot, but turn the phone off, please. Mm-hmm. So yes, sticking positive and trying to move forward with that. I have a three-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter, and my three-year-old son is obsessed with looking at pictures on my phone or iPad or whatever he can get his hands on. And the other day, we were going through the pictures, and believe it or not, he was very interested in the picture I took of my parking place at John Wayne Airport when I was flying out a few months ago. And I know you actually think parking tells us something about thinking about thinking. So would you share with us about that? And I think you can also attest that I'm not crazy for having taken a picture of the parking place. Oh, it's a smart, <laughs> smart thing to do. Um, basically, in life, you know, we have all of these things that we do. And one of the things we have to keep track of or realize, I guess, is there's interference all the time. And technically speaking, there's proactive and retroactive interference. But what it boils down to is if you're put into a similar position in multiple times, it can be very difficult to retrieve information from a specific time. So if you park at the parking lot five times across five or six months, at any given time, on the fourth or fifth time, you can come out and say, wait a minute, was this the time I parked on level one or is this the time I parked over by the elevator? And so the smartest thing to do when there's 
um, kind of overlap like this or interference is to snap a quick picture with your phone or to stop and say, okay, I am in spot number 42 in section G3. And if you stop and do that, you actually evoke kind of a process in your brain to keep track of that. Because the danger is if you jump out of your car thinking I'm going to miss my flight or I'm cutting it close or I hope I turn the iron off or whatever, if your brain is kind of really occupied with other things, you don't process that day-to-day stuff that we all process through living. And a couple of days later, you come out of that airport and have absolutely no idea where you're parked. Shooting the quick picture or just being cognitively aware of where you're at can be a very, very helpful thing. One of the things I'm concerned about with students today, although I always I always try to be cautious and not try to assume we're in, they're in such a different place. And I was so evolved when I was in college because that's certainly not the case. But it just seems so much like they're in they're just in the nick of time, constantly living in chaos. And they do enjoy taking classes with me because I use a service called Remind. And so I can program in various reminders in advance that'll text message them. And they like that. But I think, am I enabling them to go on never having a calendar? So I always get a little a little bit concerned about about that. But are we in a different place today with today's traditional 18 to 22 year olds where they are just much more living in the moment stress of not being able to put a planner together or a calendar or a schedule? Or is that in my imagination? Well, I think the the biggest thing to keep in mind is that, you know, when you talk about things like evolution and adaptation and all this good stuff is the brain doesn't change that fast. Physiology doesn't change in a generation or two. It takes a while. So you can certainly you know, people talk about rewiring the brain and things. You certainly can activate different parts of the brain and you definitely can get better at certain things than the other. So we can do some changes. However, the basic physiology of our brain looks the same as it did a very long time ago. And not that long ago, and this is the important part, not that long ago, our our environment was set up more like it was thousands of years ago. That is, for instance, televisions. Televisions in my lifetime at midnight used to go off the air and they would not come back until about six o'clock in the morning. And, you know, there would be the national anthem and then it would just basically go down to a little dot and then it would be snow. You couldn't go to the store shopping at three o'clock in the morning. You couldn't call your friends at three o'clock in the morning. Well, you could, but it was considered extremely rude. There was no texting and all of the, there was no internet to surf. Mm -hmm. So essentially you had nothing to do from midnight to six. So the concept was, I guess I go to sleep. Nowadays, at any given moment, at any given place, as long as you have a signal on your phone, you can be actively involved in something, which means essentially now our brains are never resting. And because of that, they are getting stressed, people are getting tired, and the attention's getting divided in a lot of different directions. What else do we need to know about the idea of metacognition? Well, actually, it's it's a pretty complicated term, but the easiest one to do, I really think, and, and certainly we could have a great educational psychologist debate kind of thing, but the two concepts are basically thinking about thinking and knowing when you know. So the concept of knowing when you do know something, and it's really funny, if you watch, you can catch yourself so many times at a point where you say to yourself, I thought I knew this to step back just a second or two, and you have in your head every every awareness that you knew something until there was evidence you didn't. A a quick example is you're going over to your friend's house. Um, Maybe you've been over there once or twice, and they say, do you know how to get here? And you say, yep, no problem. And all of a sudden, you're sitting in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven with your phone, and you start typing in the, the GPS 
you know, the address to find the place. At that moment, you now know that you didn't know where it was, but you certainly thought you did mm-hmm. right up until you had evidence. So you can take this into academics. I can be reading a book, and as I'm reading the book, kind of like driving to my friend's house, I might think that I'm getting this. My eyes are going across there. I'm processing all the words. It all feels okay. But eventually, or I shouldn't say eventually, there may come a point when I suddenly realize I don't know it. That could be a test, which is too late, or it could be a quick metacognitive check, which means I'm going to check to see if I know what I think I know. One of the compliments I get from my students is that I'm pretty good about bringing in current examples. And I love mm-hmm. when we can just just feel the room come alive and it's it's more like jazz music. It's just, it, you didn't plan this and people are asking questions you didn't even think we were gonna go there today. It's just, it's fun to see that. And I remember distinctly this last semester, a student raising her hand and saying, "I'm oh, I know what it was that the Apple Watch had come out. I have one on my wrist right now, by the way. And it had come out and and we were talking about the keynote talk that they had given, the second one that, that mentioned about the Apple Watch. And she said, well, I'm just really surprised that they had that guy give the talk. And that guy in this case was their vice president of marketing. And she says, well, I just thought they would have had the president of marketing give the talk if it was that important, the rollout of the Apple Watch. And I thought, oh, wow. I just sort of assumed when we talked about organizational, these are freshmen, by the way, Mm -hmm. it's an introduction to business class. And I thought, I had this assumption that I, if I said CEO, president, vice president, that you know there's not a president of marketing or a president of operations. That the vice president right. says hi as you can go until you become. But it was one of those things. And it reminded me when you were saying knowing when you know. Mm-hmm. That one moment in time in my classroom sort of haunts me, but I think in a good way. Because I think, how many times do I do that when I'm teaching? Where I think that they know, but because there's no time for exchange until a really high stakes thing like an exam, I miss it. And that must happen to us all the time as teachers. Well, yeah. And that's, and that's the amazing thing. People talk about some of the nuances, like moving from a teaching centered focus to learning centered or student centered. Um, and there are differences in there, but that concept of, of going in and giving a lecture and thinking, I got to get through chapter six. And if that's your focus, I got to get through chapter six and I'm, I'm lecturing because there's a lot of content. I have no clue if my students are getting any of this. They could be sitting there daydreaming. They could be texting and they don't need their phones and laptops. They could just be doodling and drawing pictures and thinking about hamburgers. Um, but if you put them into small groups and walk around the room and see what they're talking about, then you know if they're getting it. So much like your example you were given, if you said, get into small groups and think, if you were in charge of this company, who would you have give this presentation and why? And some people might say, well, I would give, I would have someone who works like putting them together give the presentation because wouldn't it be cool if a, a person who was on a production line was the one talking about how great this watch was and somebody else could say, well, I would give the president of marketing that job because that should be the president of marketing. And as you walk around, you would not only hear concepts that are kind of cool, but you'd get a sense of if they knew what they were talking about. So that's why we got to get students talking. There's no other way to know if they know it. In fact, there's no way for them to know if they know it unless they try to produce it. How is our brain like a phone, a smartphone, I think specifically? Oh, yes. Well, it's it's much like that concept. I pick up the phone and it's funny because still to this very day, I, I keep playing around with it. But primarily my phone, I use it to uh, to call people and I text people and I do quick um, searches on the Internet. That's primarily how I use my phone. But my phone has 
amazing capabilities. It can do so many things. I can do voice recordings on my phone. I can make little movies on my phone. I can do, I just tons of things on my phone. So the brain is kind of interesting because I, I make that analogy at times. If, if the way you use your brain is essentially, I use it to recall specific pieces of information and I live in just the standard way. I always do the same type of thing. It's kind of like using my basic functions on my phone all the time. But if you pause and actually start working at kind of working at different areas of your brain, what can you really push yourself to do and what could you learn how to do? Then suddenly we change all the possibilities. And a quick example is a person who says, well, you know, I can't draw. Well, first of all, if you can hold, and some people can't draw, which would mean they can't hold a pencil. And that's legitimately a huge um, challenge for individuals. But if you can hold a pencil in your hand, you can draw. The thing is you may draw very, very poorly. Well, if you've never actually exercised the part of your brain that's responsible for hand-eye coordination and drawing, that would explain why you're a poor drawer. It wouldn't be, I am terrible at drawing because I can't draw. You're terrible at drawing because you've never tried to draw, really. It worked at it. So working different parts of the brain, it's, it's amazing what we could accomplish. To take your example, too, because one of the things I know you've written about as well is that if I also tell myself I can't draw, then of course I can't draw. But there are people who draw with their mouths because they're unable, they don't have any hands or aren't able to use mm -hmm. them or have learned how to draw and paint amazing works with their feet. But those were people who never let anyone tell them I can't draw or that, that they aren't able to do that, never let things like that held them back. So what kind of effect does mindset have as it relates to metacognition? Does that, do those things overlap in that, those areas of research? Yeah, well, and you know, in the grand scheme of it, I suppose it all overlaps too. But <laughs> yes, this definitely comes in. Um, if the one thing we know for sure with tons of research out there is in terms of learning is if you have convinced yourself or you say, I can't do this, learning is incredibly difficult. Um, could you imagine as you're reading a book, you're thinking, as I'm reading this book, I read a little bit and think, I don't understand this. Read a little bit more. This is stupid. Read a little bit more. I don't get this. Read a little bit more. I can't learn this. And then you take a quiz over it. I mean, nobody would be surprised if you struggled with that. So that concept of mindset is based on this idea of growth. Either I can work at something and get better at it, or people have a fixed mindset. Either you have a talent or you don't. And if folks say, for instance, quantitative reasoning is a talent you either have or you don't, and I don't have it, then they will utter phrases like, I can't do math. They'll say things like, I can't give presentations. I can't write. I'm not a good writer. I can't draw. I can't. I'm not good with people. Any of those phrases are a fixed mindset where a person says, this is something that I don't have. And what we really need to do is try to bump people over to a growth mindset where you simply say, I may not be good at this, but I can get better. I might not be great at it. I may not ever be a professional, but I can certainly get better. So I wonder what the next step would be just to get a little bit better. That's and one of the so that's that's one of the things I coach my students on. If they ever say, I, I'm not good at taking tests, I say, oh, gosh, let's, and I give my little mini mindset talk. And then I say, so can we say, I am working on becoming a better test taker? Ever. That's and then right. it does help. I mean, I've had students at the end of the semester come and say that really was a good shift in their minds to make. And it, and it helped them if they were able to put some effort there. Yes. And before we move off this topic, too, is I'll tell you another really, really helpful one is to ask people what aspect. So if they say, I'm not good at taking tests, you say, what kind of tests? Because it gets them away from this concept of thinking all tests are the same. And if they say, well, actually, I'm not good at multiple choice tests and I, you know, I'm terrible at essays, but I'm not very good at multiple choice. Say, okay, well, what kind of test are you good at? 
well, you know, I might be good at true false or I might be true at whatever. But the point is you're starting to shift it. So if someone says, I can't give a presentation, you say, what kind of presentation? And once you start talking about it, you tease out exactly what you're doing. You tease out what aspect is really challenging and say, could we work at that then? One of the things you talked about in your TED Talk was this idea that we could apply what we know about working out or lifting weights or that kind of thing to making our brains work better. What can you tell us about that? It's kind of a funky thing, but I always think this is funny. I got this, the initial example of this came from my friend Terry Doyle, who was a co-author on that book, The uh, the New Science of Learning, that he and I wrote. Um, but it's that concept that he's came up with years ago. I love this is if you were going to go to the gym once every two week and lift weights for 10 hours, you can ask the students, uh, what do you think your, your physiology would be like, or what would you feel like? And <laughs> the students all the same, say the same thing as well. Every two weeks you go and lift for 10 hours, you get really, really sore. You would not build any muscles. You wouldn't get any stronger and you'd hate it. Say, oh, okay, well be kind of sad if that's how we studied, wouldn't it? And you could just pause and everyone says, okay, yeah, I kind of get it. If what you're going to do is study every two weeks for a blast of time and then not work at it for a couple of more weeks, it's kind of like building muscles. It's just not going to really develop any long-term memories. How does listening to music impact our ability to learn? Oh, that's a really, really interesting point. Um, Lots of research out there. The research basically, and this is one that I kind of him and haw just a little bit about, and it's what I usually do. I'll start to stutter and 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 kind of see, like, I'll talk like this when I think, oh, somebody's going to get mad at me. So <laughs> basically, <laughs> what the research basically shows is that study or music does not help you process information. However, there's a big asterisk out there. If it's music that you're really not processing, so basically you hear music but it's not processing in your brain. And it's not a differentiation from vocal and non-vocal music. I'll get back to that in a second. But if you're not processing it, then your focus is on the content that you're trying to learn. And it works really, really well if what the music's actually doing is blocking out background noise. So you don't hear people in the next room talking. You don't hear sounds down the hall, whatever. That helps you. But it's kind of like a white noise. Now, if it's music that you're processing, either because it's vocals and you're kind of singing along with the vocals or non-vocal instrumental music and you're kind of humming along with it, instrumental music is very, very thought-provoking at times, then it's competing with the information you're trying to read. So if you can find some, there's some good actually web-based ones. There's some um, music that you can get through YouTube that will play almost an hour and it's just background almost random kinds of sounds and it's melodic, but it's it's like melodic white noise that can be extremely helpful. But if you're sitting there listening to the popular songs on the radio, every research that I have read says that that is, does not help learning. A few years ago at our university, we took a multiple intelligences test designed around Gardner's multiple intelligence theory. And mm-hmm. I wound up you know, very proud of receiving a 100% in one of my intelligences. The only problem was it was musical intelligence, which doesn't do a whole lot of good if you teach business and management and have nothing to do with music in your life. But I learned that some of my other colleagues who received 100% on that too, this is not the only distinctive thing about someone who has musical intelligence, but you might be more likely to constantly in your life have a soundtrack going. And I thought, I thought that was just something that 
was just unique to me. I didn't really realize there were a lot of us running around in this world that constantly have a soundtrack. But you talked about in your TED Talk that you can't just say classical is fine and, you know, with lyrics isn't because, I mean, if I listen to classical, and that's not my number one type of music to listen to, but all of it is just, it does start to go in my head and I start Mm -hmm. to hear the melodies and that can certainly distract me. By the way, I think um, a side note, one of the things I think is helpful to have in your toolkit as a professor is a, some kind of white noise. For a number of reasons, if you travel at all, white noise can be such a good thing to help get a hotel room to be a little more hospitable towards sleep. But also in the classroom, we have it's sometimes downstairs. It doesn't happen too often, but someone will be playing drums in the basement of the building where I often teach. And just being able to put on some white noise and plug that into the speaker system. Though The app that I use is called Asleep, literally the word asleep. I- but there's a bunch of them out there. I mean, you can also just buy tracks on iTunes and put a track on re- repeat or something like that. But I really think white noise is great. I haven't checked out the type of music that you're referring to, but I'll, I'll definitely look that up after today. How does sleep or exercise affect our ability to learn? Some of the stuff that's really interesting about the research um, these days, kind of digging through a bunch of stuff, is is some things that don't seem to be really related to learning. I mean, we talk about learning. It's usually what you're thinking about learning and practicing things and reading books and studying and all those types of things. But there's also some physiological components of the human brain that kind of put you in a good um, physiological set. I almost called it a mindset, but it's a different thing. It's it's that concept of physiologically, you can, you can incorporate new information. You can learn new things. And so... Some of the things that can impact that, for instance, are sleep. When you're tired, this is one we all know, when you're fatigued, it's much harder to learn something than it is when you're rested. And what most people don't realize, again, kind of that metacognitive awareness, is people don't realize when they are tired. So you might be reading a material and say, I don't get it. And the reason you don't get it is because you're actually tired, which means your energy in your brain is kind of going to brain functioning, just survival kinds of things. And you can't really cognitively process things at a higher processing level. And there's all kinds of neurotransmitters and everything else that's too complicated for right now. But the concept of getting sleep helps replenish those things. And exercise also does. There's all kinds of good research out there that exercising actually facilitates the learning process. And sleep does it. One of my favorite studies was an astronaut study, by the way, or done by NASA with astronauts, in which... A group of astronauts were given a nap in the afternoon. Another group was not, and they kept working through these cognitive tasks. And the group that had the nap had a 34% increase in cognitive functioning even hours after the nap over the group that didn't have the nap. So that concept of taking a quick respite or exercising, and you look at exercising versus not exercising in processing information and things like attention spans, ability to focus, all those things. There's just some huge benefits out there. You know, you mentioned exercise, and I'm I'm curious if you have anything that you do before you teach or before you go do a TED Talk or something like that that helps you get your mind, your body, your yourself ready to engage with an audience. Is there any sort of preparation that you go about doing? Well, that's that's one of the tricky ones you have to be a little bit careful of because, of course, our, the way that our brains work is extremely complex. So let's go this way first is – Sometimes if you're really, really nervous, you know, you could do a couple of quick jumping jacks or you could run around the building or take a quick walk or something. And that may very well relax you because you're engaged in a repetitive motion or because you're getting out of the environment for a few seconds. You know, there's the old concept of you take a quick walk outside and come back in and you feel less stressed. And 
you know, you think, wow, that walk really helped me. Well, what helped you was you got outside and looked at trees and grass and mm -hmm. people and you stopped thinking about the thing that was making you so stressed. So that can certainly help. The research basically doesn't demonstrate that if you do jumping jacks at the beginning of class that you're going to be able to process the in information better because of neurotransmitters and the way it's working. It's more of that may be used as a focal point to say, okay, hey, everybody, it's time to learn. You do the jumping jacks, it may actually signal a learning time for you. But physiologically, that one, I mean, again, it, physiologically in the brain probably doesn't do a whole lot, but psychology, psychologically, it may be very helpful. Yeah, and I, I so appreciate your you're discussing the nuance and complexity of something like the brain and uh, you you make it so accessible even though it is so complex I, I also think some of this is just a personal preference type of thing of what what works for you when you're when you're getting ready and and what works for you may be a technique that works for someone else and and others might think oh that doesn't work as well for me I, I like to if I'm talking in front of a really large group I don't know if you've ever done this before I actually like to make sure I get some time to go stand in the space yeah. That, that was something I, and I can't explain why I can't do research on my <laughs> on my brain and why this worked. But that was something that really helped bring my nerves down was to go and stand in the same place where I'd be giving the talk and try to get a sense of just what it felt like to be there. And because otherwise, if you if, if it's something that has a lot of lighting or cameras or something like that, and you get up there and then you're going to end up focusing on oh, that light's really bright in my eyes. And then I'm going to hold my hand up to try to block it. And you just end up having the focus get lost on that great first impression that you can make instead of, um, so I, I don't know, that's helpful to me. Well, no, this, this is really good because basically what happens, and we can draw this right back in academia very, very quickly, is you only have so much cognitive energy. So you have a certain amount of energy that you can use to process information. So uncertainty requires more information than known things. If you get into your car and start driving, it's way easier to pull out of a parking space and get into traffic driving from your car than it is a rental. If you imagine what's the probability of getting in an accident with a rental car versus your own car, a rental would be way higher. And the reason I'm throwing this example in there is now imagine you're stepping onto a stage that you are familiar with versus unfamiliar. And if you're totally unfamiliar with it, then all that cognitive energy is going to get drawn into trying to figure things out very quickly instead of doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is your presentation. As soon as you step up on that stage, you look around and say, okay, that's where the clock is. That's where the audience is. That's what the light feels like. All of those sensations will not bombard your brain and make you say, whoa, I got to process this right now. And as a result, then you don't have to process that. You have more time to process the thing you want to focus on. I hadn't ever thought of that before. That's really helpful for me to frame it that way. I was thinking about a speaker I saw about four months ago who was phenomenal. I mean, I thought she was so dynamic and had fantastic stories and captivating. It just took a little while for me and my brain to recover from her initial impression. She walked up to the front and it was, oh, I don't need a microphone, do I? Yes, you do. It's a real echoey kind of place where she was speaking. And then it was, yeah. well, are you going to advance my slides? And and how, do I just tell you to go? And I thought, oh my goodness, it would have taken five minutes. I always err on the side of you need a microphone. If you're in a place where there's any question, it's just going to make it so much easier for people to hear. I have many yeah. colleagues who are hard of hearing. Myself is a tad bit hard of hearing. Just go for it. If, if there's a microphone there, use it. And if there's any way where you can have a clicker where you can advance your own slides, I think that's ideal. I think it's the best $20 investment that any of us <laughs> yes. could make. In fact, I'll put a link to my favorite one in the show notes unless you have one that you'd like to recommend too. But no. the, I mean, and if someone's going to advance your slides, um, that's 
it's just tough if that's your only choice then to try to have just a, a physical gesture instead of a bunch of next slide, next slide, next slide. Well, yes, it, it, it draws away from the attention of what's happening. But also, you know, real quickly, I guess, talking about faculty roles too, imagine the same thing for a student then. If a student walks into the test and sits down to take an exam and doesn't really know the first exam, well, that's the best example, doesn't know really how you're going to start the test, is it right away, um, doesn't know for sure, like what, if you're going to read instructions, are you going to stop people exactly at the end? I mean, they're sitting there trying to figure out what's this test going to be like, and that's burning cognitive energy that could be spent by actually practicing. You could have students come in and take a quiz. And if you haven't take a quiz before an exam and then you say, by the way, when you take the exam in a few weeks, it's going to start just like this. It's just going to be longer. All of those nuances of the same thing as looking at canned lights or clickers or advancing slides, the same type of thing. That all goes away because you don't have to think about those other things. So take away the stuff that just doesn't necessarily need to draw cognitive energy. I'm going to be thinking about that a bunch. Thank you for putting that framework sure. in my mind. As we move over to the recommendation segment, I just want to give you one minute to wrap us up talking about this. What's the most important thing we can do to improve our thinking about learning? The biggest thing for me still is anytime you're surprised, stop and think about why you were surprised and what just happened. So if you get lost, instead of saying, oh my gosh, I'm lost, I hate getting lost, say, how did I get lost? It may be that you got lost because you didn't have a good understanding of where you were going. You didn't check, whatever it is. If you take a test and get an F minus minus, instead of being frustrated by it and everything else and saying, well, I guess I better study harder, you stop and say, okay, this was not what I expected. What should I do differently next time? If you lose your car at the airport, how do I not lose my car at the airport next time? If you're having a conversation with somebody and you forget a thought in the middle of the conversation, you say, gosh, I hate it when that happens. Instead of just getting frustrated by all these things, you stop and say, okay, why might that have happened and how can I work toward it not happening in the future? And so I guess that's it. Thinking about the process of thinking when it goes poorly and how you can fix it as opposed to just repeating it. This is the part in the show where we each get to make a recommendation, and mine is a quick one just about the service called Dropbox. I know many of us in academia use it, and one of the downsides to using Dropbox as opposed to using Google Docs, for example, is the lack of real collaboration. I think they've made a good innovation lately to try to combat some of our perceptions about that with a new commenting feature. So if you go on the, not on the folder that sits on your computer, but on the website version of dropbox.com and you log in and you go to one of your files, you can invite people into the conversation around that document with their new commenting feature. And you just use the at symbol and invite them via email or via their Dropbox username and they can come on and make comments on the document. And it just adds a lot of collaboration that wasn't there in the past with Dropbox. And what is your recommendation for us today? I'm going to cheat and do two. Oh, please. So the first one is F.Lux. It's F-L-U-X. And basically what that is, it's um, you can download on your computer. Your computers are basically set up so that it's a laptop is set up so that it's bright all the time. But as it gets late into evening and you open up your laptop and it's really, really bright and it like glows the whole room. What this basically does is looks at the time of day and it decreases the brightness of your laptop automatically as it gets late into the evening. So it's kind of a cool thing. Mm. It also could be set up, I believe this is the one, that um, shifts over away from the blue light because there's some great research that shows that if you look at much blue light, 
especially in the evening, it can shut down um, melatonin release and it actually makes it hard to sleep. And the other one is a little app called Forest and you can just grab this one. It's just called Forest. And essentially what it is, is you set this thing up for an amount of time and it might be like for 40 minutes and you open the app and say for 40 minutes, I'm going to study. And if you look at anything on your phone, it's kills it it starts to grow a tree as you do this and then the tree is fully grown at whatever time span you pick and if you look at anything on your phone other than that little app it kills the tree and the concept there is that you actually once you get this app started is that you focus on whatever it is you're doing studying reading or whatever and then you don't keep looking at your phone because if you do you you know you'll kill the trees and that's so sad that would be so sad it reminds me of those little things that I can't remember the name of them, but we were supposed to try to keep alive by feeding them. But oh. that was the opposite of that, actually. It's better. I like the trees and That's I like the right. staying away from stuff. I should know the name of that. Well, before we end our podcast, if people wanted to learn more about your work, what would, what would be a best way to sort of get in touch or keep in touch with your research and your books as you're coming out with them? Yeah. So Twitter is just uh, my name. So it's just Todd Zakrizik. Um, as the Twitter account, it's just at Todd Zakrizik. And also, by the if you probably the easiest thing to do is just type my name in, Todd Zakrizik, and go to the web and type that in along with the words like apathy or teaching or faculty or keynote or anything else. And those things will pop up. But that'll that'll bring up so many things. I mean, these days I usually tell people if there's anything you need is you go to a good search engine and type in exactly what you need. And so if you throw my name into a search engine, it's gonna pop up. Um the book I wrote with Terry Doyle has become extremely popular. People really seem to like that. And that's The New Science of Learning, How to Learn in Harmony with Your Brain. And it's a stylist publishing book. And then I have another book that's coming out, I believe it's in September, of 101 Intentionally Designed Activities for the Classroom with Claire Merger and uh, Michael Harris. Would you come back in September and talk about the book? And we can oh, focus on 101 Intentionally Designed Activities for the Classroom. See, I think you're fabulous. I will come back anytime you would like me to. Oh, that would be great. Well, good. We can look forward to having you back on the show to talk about your book then that's coming out in September. And Excellent. I love to. Oh, wonderful. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and contributing to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. It was so great having Todd on today's show. And before I close, I wanted to mention that if you have any interest in a professional development opportunity. He runs four of the five Lilly conferences and they're wonderful resources to help us develop our skills in teaching in higher ed. I'll put a link to the Lilly conferences in the show notes and they are held all over the country. Feel free to check out the link to the Lilly conferences and see if you can incorporate that into your own professional development. And he'll be out here in 2016 February 18th through 21st, and I'm excited about attending that one in the coming year. He has presented workshops in 43 out of the 50 states and would be available to come out and explore possibilities in your state if you'd like to talk to Todd about that. And he already shared how to contact him, and I'll put that in the show notes. But it was so great to get to talk to him about metacognition and developing those skills in our students. This was the 47th episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please go to teachinginhighered.com slash 47. 
And remember, we're getting ready for the 50th episode. If you'd like to leave a message with your ideas that you've taken away from listening all these episodes, or even if you're a new listener, something you've taken away, as well as a recommendation, please call 949-38-LEARN and leave a voicemail. Or you could just email me an MP3 if you prefer to do those recordings on your own. Or even just jot a quick email at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks so much for listening and I look forward to celebrating number 50 with you soon.